Shooting Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So I'm going to do something right at the beginning that I think is risky for me, but I stand by it 100%. And that is I am going to guarantee that this episode will be one of the most interesting interviews you've ever heard. Because I get the privilege to sit down with Jenny Kleeman, author of the book Sex Robots and Vegan Meat, which if that title alone doesn't make you want to grab this thing right off the shelves, I don't know what will. But, but the book is more about the frontiers of technology, where we're going, how it's going to affect our daily lives. And it doesn't just have sex robots, but there's artificial wombs, lab-grown meat, the future of death. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on here and a lot of philosophical questions that are asked and then answered and then more questions pop up. And this isn't just about the technology, uh, but that's that's where we're going to start. And you know my love of technology. I'm going to stick a plug right at the beginning. You know my podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, where we talk about pop culture technology and science fiction and comic books and all that stuff. And I got to tell you, after reading this book, the fictional side pales in comparison to the reality of what's going on out there. So let's just jump right into this with Jenny Kleeman. Jenny, thank you so much for being on the show today. So I'm going to tell you a little, a little story right off the bat. I, I'm going to... I didn't want to share this, but I think you're going to appreciate this. So due to um, a scheduling goof on my part, I thought we were doing this interview a week from today. Uh-huh. So, so what did that mean? It meant I have a very structured system on how I read the book, so many pages per day. So it meant as of yesterday morning, I, was, I had 200 pages to read. So, <laughs> so I read it all in one day, oh, wow. which actually turned out to be the best thing for me, although it kept me up. At about 5 a.m. my time, I woke up and this, I mean, your book was like whizzing around in my head <laughs> because, <laughs> because this is, this is, I mean, this is just absolutely what I love. It's right down my alley, you know? I mean, it's quite, I mean, there's so many, there's philosophical questions, there's technological questions, there's the future of humanity. You raise a lot of questions, you, you give a lot of answers, and I think there's so much to this book that, I mean, I hate to ask this, but did you intend to have it to be like almost like a piece of art where anyone can kind of pull whatever they want from the book? Well, I guess I kind of write in a certain way where I want the reader to make up their own mind. So it, it should be that you can get whatever you want from it. But I also hope that what I think is kind of clear. Um, but I don't know. Maybe it isn't. <laughs> I don't know. I'm quite I come from a background of documentary making and in, in documentary oh. making the 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 kind of golden rule is that the best documentaries, the, the viewer makes their own mind up on the basis of what they see, that you shouldn't You're be right. telling them in voiceover. Um, they should be making, it's more powerful if you come to your own decision, really. That makes sense. I mean, so, well, I do, I do want to take some issue with that. I'm going to talk about it later on because I think you do definitely have a point of view in this yeah. book. Uh, <laughs> definitely. So I think, and I think that that's clear, but you know, before we get into that, so First of all, I studied documentary in undergrad, so I've got to ask you what your favorite documentary is because that will tell me a lot. Oh gosh, there are so many documentaries. I think there's a there are so many documentaries I love. Probably the best documentary that I've seen is called The King of Kong, which is about the incredibly competitive quest to get the highest ever score on Donkey Kong. I think that's the perfect yeah. documentary. But there are so yeah. many that I love. I mean, it, it depends. There are ones that make you think. There are ones that make you laugh. There are ones with great characters. It depends what mood you're in. I love that you said that because one of the things I like to do, it's like a Where's Waldo in both of my podcasts, is to where can I stick in a shameless plug? And you just helped me out there because The King of Kong is one of my favorite documentaries. My favorite Good. is American Movie. Yes. But the, the the referee from that, Walter Day, I interviewed him on this podcast. Really? And he, yeah. He is the most 
interesting. He actually, if they did a documentary on him, he would be way more interesting than either Billy Mitchell or I forget the guy's name who was who was trying to break the record in that. He is a fascinating guy. You know, he collected business cards. He has a hundred, two hundred thousand business cards in storage. Did you know that? I did not know that. No. Yeah, <laughs> business cards. You know, like I don't. You know. <laughs> yeah, he had people send them in. I mean, he's he's a. Uh, Quite a guy. So, uh, yeah, he's something. Um, amazing that we're on the same podcast. Well, it's an honor to be here then, particularly. <laughs> well, you are definitely in a long line of great guests. Uh, you might possibly be one of my favorite because I really enjoyed this book. But before we dive into that, I got to give you a little quiz here because I learned something a little interesting about you. Um, you got into journalism because you wanted to be a rock star. Is That's this true? That's true. Yes. <laughs> you you got you to tell me more about that. Uh, I got into journalism because I was trying to sustain myself as a musician. I came out of university and I thought, okay, I want to be a rock star. I am not a rock star yet. I am going to find some job that gives me the freedom to work on my music whenever I've got music to work on or, or possibilities of doing things. Uh, so I thought, I'll, this is back in the days where you, it was possible to make a living as a freelance journalist. So I thought I'll go and be a freelance journalist. So I got some shifts at the Guardian newspaper. I did little bits and pieces here and there. I was always kind of going back to my music, but it turns out I wasn't very good at the music. Wasn't very good at it. So it's much better for planet Earth that it's my journalism that's, uh, that's got legs and not my music. I mean, I guess so. I mean, you said you weren't any good at it, but uh, do you have any albums? Do you have a guitar handy? I mean, is there any way we can kind of test it? I have it? a guitar over there, uh, but it's very, very dusty. No, I, I have my electric guitars are upstairs. I always have, I have guitars everywhere. I'm, it's my great love is is music. And in fact, perhaps the greatest achievement from uh, writing this book is that I got invited onto this podcast made by the Jimi Hendrix Museum, where I got to talk about uh, music and guitars. Yes, that hasn't come out yet, but... Um, yeah, it's, it's my great love. It's always what what kind of moves me most emotionally is, is is music. But that doesn't make for a very good rock star. You know, I was very kind mm. of looked at music in a very romantic way, and I wanted to be the kind of artist. And I didn't really think about actually the commercial business of of of, of being a musician. I would have been very very bad at that. And yeah. <laughs> I, I found my niche now, and it's a good thing, I think. So, so you were kind of one of those artists who was afraid of selling out? I mean, we're like one of those guys. I, I took myself very seriously, which is part of the reason why the music wasn't very good. And also, I just didn't think of it as, as an industry. I didn't think, okay, I need to get my music in front of the right people, and I need to have an image and market myself. I didn't think about that at all. I was very romantic about it, and mm. I thought, okay, if I have a pure heart and play whatever comes from my heart, then um, I'm going to be filling stadiums and marrying right. one of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but it hasn't happened. Right. You were you were young, weren't you? <laughs> That's adorable. I mean, it's a great it's you know it's it's a great aspiration to have, and it's kind of interesting how that led you to journalism because I would, I know I mean I live in Los Angeles and I know a lot of people who want to be rock stars, and you had a very practical approach to surviving that I don't think a lot of people have. And I think that almost, you know, kind of uniquely suits you for journalism in some way. It has to be part art. It has to be, yeah. um, you, you know what I mean? And There's equally, I mean, I, pursuing the music set me up for my career as a journalist. So for example, this was when I was really, really into music, I'm still into music, but when I was particularly really into music and I was a teenager, this was just before every household had the internet. And so I had to be really resourceful to find out things about the bands that I liked. It wasn't like you go onto YouTube and you type in a name. I had to, um, you know, make friends at concerts and we'd swap videotapes of, of bootleg things that we'd seen. And, and also it meant that I was mixing with a really wide group of people. I grew up in London. I had quite a privileged life, but I would go to these concerts and, and be, you know, surrounded by lots of sweaty people from all over the place. And I had to learn how to be able to talk to everyone and how to make those contacts and connections. And so it was, you know, it was much better training for journalism than my university degree, I would say. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it. And so last question on that, what type of music? I mean, I assume it's rock. I mean, was you talking like grunge? just a grunge scene and well yeah 70s rock. it was it was yeah it was that kind of thing grungy music music with you know guitars bass and drums very loud music but i, I like all <laughs> kinds of music now music that is played by proper musicians with talent i like but yeah, yeah. I have soft spot for guitars <laughs> that's that's amazing so i mean it sounds like we have very similar tastes i mean you mentioned the king of kong which is interesting because that is 
What's great about that documentary is it's his investigation into a bygone era of technology. And in some ways, you know, it's it's like a nostalgic view on technology. But has technology always appealed to you? I mean, are you a sci-fi fan? Because this book has a lot of science fiction elements. No, not really. Uh, I'm not a sci-fi fan. And huh. I don't really think of myself as a tech journalist, which is why I think I'm kind of well equipped to write this book, because I can go into it with quite wide, innocent eyes and not worry about sustaining those relationships with the people that I'm interviewing, not worrying about having to go back and interview them again. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, I am really interested in the extremes of humanity. And I think when you look at technological innovation, that's quite often where you see those people who are pushing those boundaries of what makes us what we are. And I'm drawn to stories that are kind of, that sound eye-popping and incredible, but actually through exploring them, we can all learn something about humanity, how we're living today. Right. Well, I mean, so the, uh, that's a great point and a great segue because the four, I mean, you, you've talked about this in several interviews about how you kind of came to these four topics. I mean, you think you were, you were researching two for, for a separate journalistic endeavor and you kind of decided to round them out with the other two. And that's how you came up with the four. And, and, you know, you talk about how it's like the perfect four pillars of humanity, which is very true. But one thing that struck me, this is what kept me up at five in the morning last night. I mean, I like popped out of bed and I was like, wow, what we're really talking about in this book is humanity's constant struggle against nature. How can we conquer nature and how can we play God? And once you have mastered these three, four things, and I should mention them in case anyone hasn't read the book, and it's birth, death, reproduction, and eating, sustaining ourselves. Once you've mastered those four things, in some ways you've really mastered the fundamental nature of life itself, mm. and then you can become God or replace him. Uh, I don't know, that, that kept me awake for three hours. I mean, how, how did, what did that do to you? Well, I think that is the key of it all. And the key, the word that you've got there is, is the key to all is, is mastering. I think mm -hmm. human beings have this desire to control everything. And that comes from a kind of primal fear of the fact that we are actually at the mercy of nature. And we are quite good at mastering some things. We've been quite good at, you know, mastering animals to an extent and building houses so that we don't get wet when it rains. And so we become obsessed with this idea that ultimately we might be able to control everything and that, you know, the world will not be such a scary place. But of course, we can't control everything. So the book in many ways is about the unintended consequences, the unintended consequences of trying to control what up until this point has always been beyond our control and yet defines our existence. Yeah, and that's a great way to put it. I mean, it, it's it's just a scary concept because when you start to realize how I mean, like, look what we're going through right now, you know, I mean, this pandemic, I mean, there's questions on whether it's man-made or nature, right? And and without deciding which side of the fence you fall on, either one of those scenarios is actually terrifying because it is something that can be unleashed and affect almost every person on the planet. Whether it's man-made or made in nature, either one of those is a terrifying concept, you know, and I think... Like you said, it's fear-based. And once we have a fear of that, we want to master it. We want to get the vaccine. How can we tame this virus? And then there's some people who want to weaponize the virus, I'm sure. You know, we have this very humanity is very strange. And technology, the more advanced that we get, the more dangerous some of these outcomes become. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there will be people right now with, you know, bad intentions who have seen how you can hold humanity to ransom with this virus. <laughs> well, there will right. be. Who, yeah, are, who yeah. are thinking, how can I bioengineer bio the next one? You know? Right, right. People thinking about I that. Yeah, and that's assuming we haven't bioengineered this one. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, you have this great um, – well, it turns out – I mean, it's a literal thing in the book that you talk about, but it, it turns out to be a great metaphor for the book. And you talk about this trip that you took to Las Vegas here in the States. And there's you walk into this hotel, and there's speakers playing on the outside, very loud speakers, and, and the music's designed to get people to come into the hotel – and then as a courtesy, the hotel offers you, I believe it's three types of earplugs to drown out that noise. Um, there's so much in that metaphor. I loved it because it tells you the literal thing that's going on, but also the metaphor of what's going on. And that is that we do we use technology to achieve something. That technology has these unintended consequences you mentioned earlier. So then instead of changing our behavior or changing the original technology or changing our, our culture, whatever it is, whatever the thing is, we then make up more technology. You know, it's this idea of like, hey, we're stuck in a hole. Well, I know what we'll do. We'll dig our way out. 
You know, it doesn't make any logical sense. Did that kind of mess with your mind while you were researching these four topics? It seemed to be a repeating theme. It was. And, and that, that is the key metaphor of the book. And it's something also I think that's particularly American in my experience, because part of the, well, it's it, you know, yeah. it's a very consumerist thing, which is you've got a problem. Yeah. I can I can sell you a solution for that. And in, in America, there are so many examples of that. Um, like uh, the, the other one that I keep thinking about is, um, you know, the, the market in melatonin to help you sleep, that instead uh -huh. of, you know, everybody being, um, you know, you, you, you need melatonin to regulate your sleep. And that comes from being outside and being in the light and not, ha not having your hormone balance messed with by the blue light from your phones or by staying indoors. Right. And so instead yeah. of putting your phone down, we'll sell you a pill that will make you, that will give you, that will compensate for the problems caused by the other bit of kit that you've got. Yes. Yeah. It's a central image. In, 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 I think it says something very interesting about how we live today, that we, we feel reluctant to change our behavior. And in, instead we're going to be ridiculously overcompensating with different layers of, of complexity for something that we can achieve. We can achieve the goal that we want very simply by just doing things a little differently, but we're, we're reluctant to change, or at least we were reluctant to change. And I'm quite hopeful that we can change when we're confronted with how absurd our behavior is. Yeah. Well, says the musician who wanted to be a, a purist. And uh, <laughs> so you and I are on different ends of that spectrum, I believe. Uh, I'm, I'm, I see I'm a little more cynical because what I've realized, you know, because reading your book, it was almost in some ways, I wasn't personal to me, um, you know, and but it was interesting because I live in Los Angeles. I live in California, which is a centerpiece of your book. And American, as you mentioned, American culture is kind of uniquely suited to if not be the only example in the world, it is the purest example of what you're talking about. Mm. And and I think that that's really what makes that the best canvas for, for what you're saying. I mean, we are the type of people who are looking, I mean, Silicon Valley, you mentioned this a lot, that there, there are wacky ideas going through there to design and change the world. I mean, you know, the, the, this, uh, this is such an annoying phrase, but it's used a lot, which is, you know, move fast and break things. Well, mm -hmm. In my opinion, I'm kind of a naturalist. I think nature's figured out a lot of this stuff, and there's a reason why that system is in place and why it's evolved over hundreds of thousands of years for humans specifically, mm. but millions of years in animals in general. And, you know, I think we forget that, that we, we're always reinventing the wheel. You know, it's like, well, maybe we can make the wheel a little bit more round. It's like, it's round. Round is round. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so that's that's what struck me is what when you were kind of looking through all this. Well, there is a particular psyche that comes from uh, a culture that developed in a country where pioneers broke out and, and conquered new territory. And you had to have a particular kind of enterprising spirit in order to survive in that world. And I think this whole move fast and break things or fake it till you make it, all of the rest of it, that can work if you're designing a, a, a piece of computer software or a, a, a scooter that you can book with an app. The problem is when you're looking at things that are going to change things as intimate as birth, food, sex and death, you kind of have to get it right. And particularly when you're developing technologies that are saying, human beings don't need to compromise, they don't need to change their behavior. They are kind of, they're, they're preventing us from doing work that we need to do on ourselves if we think we can buy a solution um, or take it out of a box rather than actually examine how we live and, and think about whether or not we want to perpetuate that, that style of behavior. So that's the worry, is that those promises are over-promising and, and, and uh, getting us not to do work that we need to do. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's a, again, it's epitomized in the American culture of the pharmaceutical industry. I mm. mean, this is it, it, our healthcare system is, I think, bizarre to everyone else in the world. Yeah. <laughs> it's bizarre to me, too. Very bizarre. <laughs> I have to say, watching American television, you have all of those commercials and then all of the disclaimers at the end. It's oh. hilarious. It's yeah. hilarious for outsiders. Well, I love that you read that because I, so I've been watching a lot of streaming lately and there are so many pharmaceutical commercials on Hulu and all this stuff. And so I write them down. I, I have a couple other podcasts that I do. And so I, I want and one of them I made a joke on all the, the you know, like Sky Rizzy is my favorite new name for, for a pharmaceutical. There's one called Jardians and it's I think it's for diabetes. I don't know. But it had the weirdest side effect, which is. Uh, a, an unusual life-threatening bacterial infection on your perineum. And for those of you who don't know that, that is the, uh, the taint, the chode, if I may, uh, <laughs> the area between your um, anus and your genitals. But how specific is that? And what? who would want to take that risk? 
<laughs> it's just crazy. But we sell these pills as if they are an end-all, be-all. You take this pill and that's the end of your problems. And it's not. It's only the beginning of them, especially if you end up with a perineum infection. Um, but I think this speaks to exactly what you're talking about in the book. And that's what really kind of resonated with me, I think. Yeah. And then you'll need to buy another pill to deal with the side effect of the, of the first pill, which is exactly right. what I'm talking about. It's the earplugs in the noisy hotel room. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's exactly the same thing. Uh, but then again, it's a, it's a great metaphor as well, is that we all wish we could just take a pill and the problem would be solved. But life, life is not like that, you know. Yeah, it doesn't quite work like that. Um, so one of the things, yeah, I got I got one beef with you, though, Jenny. Um, and this, we'll call it vegan beef. It's not real beef, but it's pretty close. <laughs> but there's, you know, it struck me because you, you hit this right in the preface. And it stuck with me the rest of the rest of the book. But this is, there's... I, I don't want to call, I, I don't want to offend, I don't want to say it's a feminist slant, I don't want to say it's a misandrist slant, is I saying that correctly, uh, uh, you know, hating men, but you start off right off in the book almost going after males in general, you know, you, you talk about incels with the sex robots and the, you know, and the, the MGTOWs with the, with the birth, and there's, I think you, you even, there's one of the, one of the things, there's a, a guy who was with sex dolls, and he was, he's the only person who really will kind of go on camera and talk about um, being in love with sex dolls, but then you kind of make like a snarky comment on him, and I was like, well, these are, I, I get that, but, you know, these, we're talking about fringe groups that represent one, less than one half of one quarter of one percent of any male belief, and you're talking about a guy who went on camera to talk to you. Was this intentional? Was was this what was going on there? What are you talking about? Are you talking about my you, you didn't like my tone or you didn't like the fact that there was a feminist feminist angle to it? No, I think a feminist angle is inevitable because the stuff you're talking about is in some ways uniquely feminine. Reproduction in some ways is very specific. But just the going after I mean, because the first line in the book is and I think this is what set the tone for me, was that it's like, you know, I talked to a lot of men in the industry and quote in parentheses, and they're all men. And I was like, well, why is that necessary? Why is the parenthetical necessary? Why does that matter? You know what I mean? Um, it really matters because the point is that technology at the moment is being created largely by and for men. And there are a lot of women who have written about this. You know, I don't know if you read Caroline Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women, but it's all about how the, the implications of technology designed for men. You know, I have my phone here. It's too big for my hand. My hand is an average woman-sized hand and I can't get my thumb around all of it. You know, women are kind of not necessarily uppermost in the thoughts of most people who design stuff because generally things designed by men, men are thinking about, okay, what do I want? What do I need? What size do I think it should be? They don't think, oh, 50% of the population, their hands are smaller or their lives are smaller. That, that is just a fact that the, in the tech industry, overwhelmingly, engineers are overwhelmingly male. So pretty much everyone I spoke to in the book, well, everybody I spoke to in the book who was developing this technology, they were all men. And in fact, only one, I could only find one woman involved in the development of any of the technologies. One of the scientists behind one of the artificial wounds is a woman. But generally, it's all men who work on these technologies. And that's just how the tech industry works. So part of what I was looking at was what are the implications of all of these products that are being designed by men and, and with male priorities in mind, because men and women often do have different priorities. And I guess I do look at I do look at MGTOWs and incels, but those are, again, the extreme end of who might want to use these technologies. And I, I, I found that guy who uh, talks about using a, a, a being married to his, his sex doll. And I tried not to be snarky with him. I have a lot of respect for him. I mean, he was very gentle with his, with his doll and he was um, very loving with her. Uh, at first, I was suspicious about whether or not he was just doing it for attention from journalists. And then I got the, the impression that he really wasn't at all. Uh, but I, I think I make it very clear that I don't take those groups to be representing all men at all. Um, you know, I, I, I don't. I think they're very much on the on the end of a continuum. But the point is, it's a it's a continuum. No, that's fair. I mean, I mean, I guess with the guy with the doll, you mentioned you wouldn't trust him in a, the doll aisle of a toy store, and I was like, ah, come on. <laughs> maybe that was a bit. Maybe that maybe that was a bit close to the bone. Yes. No, yeah. No, yeah. talk about walking in a, working in a. I mean, this is a man who has five sex dolls that he comes right, home, to, yeah. home, home to all of the time. But yeah, you're right. Maybe yeah. that was a bit of an unfair joke. He didn't no. mind it though. 
Okay, all right. This wasn't behind his back. No, that's fair. I, you know, I guess that's true. I mean, you know what's interesting about that? And I, I don't want to go down a whole a whole path on this because I think the other stuff's very much more interesting. But I think we live in a strange culture, right? And so the, the points you bring up are very valid and they're interesting. And, and you know, I, I'm hard because I'm in the demographic you're talking about. And so when you're kind of in the forest, it's difficult to see how other people view it. So that's fair. But then, you know, there's a whole other group of people who would say, well, there, there's, there's the ultimate, I don't know, uh, the ultimate equality guys, right? The ultimate equality people, let's say, who are saying like, well, why, you know, if I'm a woman, I want to be treated exactly the same. So I don't want to have a phone that's different sized, you know? And then there's a whole gender spectrum, you know, and uh, so it becomes difficult because then how, who do you please? You know, I mean, it's, well, I it's guess tricky. from that perspective, you would say if there's total equality, then there should be. And, and I'm not saying I'm arguing for this because I'm not. But I'm saying if there has total equality, then there has to be total gender equality among the designers in any workroom so that all uh, perspectives and body types are taken into consideration when you're designing mm -hmm. things. You see what I mean? I don't necessarily think that's a yeah. positive route to, route to go down. But I mean, there is a kind of old school feminism that says that real equality for women means that they, they don't have to plead a special case that they can get by. But the problem is that we live in a world that where certain facts of our biology, like the fact that we grow babies inside our bodies means it's really difficult if we're treated exactly equally to men. If, you know, if a man asked for a year off work or six months off work, or I know in America, you don't get very much, very long off work at all. Six months? What are you talking about? Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't happen here. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, I think America is kind of on a limb when it, when it comes to that kind of maternity care. But, um, you know, if a man was to ask for that, you'd say, hey, well, you know, no. So, I think I don't necessarily believe that everybody should be uh, treated equally because I think that there are some cases where, you know, women are smaller. Therefore, you need to think about them when you're designing products that they're going to use. And also women have babies. So you need to think about that when you're designing your workplace. No, that's fair. I mean, but it is it, from a production standpoint, it is impossible to have 14 different sizes of phones. For every yeah, but you could have two or three. And in fact, Apple do now, don't they? Yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. they do. They've responded to that. So. Um, you can think about that or you can think, OK, we'll have a phone this big, but you won't need to, you know, swipe up the whole way. It won't, it won't matter if you have to swipe up the whole way. Do you see what I mean? That makes sense. And I think it's a really interesting segue into sex robots because, you know, I have been following sex robots since the beginning and I have been absolutely fascinated with sex robots. Now, I'm not... I, I'm not obsessed with sex itself. I just think sex robots are interesting because I believe they will be the cutting edge of AI and robotics. Because if we look at the military, most people think the military would be it. I, I, I am a sci-fi fan, so I love Terminator and I love all this stuff. And when you look at the military, you know, Boston Dynamics is making just mm -hmm. unbelievable humanoid and dog-like robots yeah. that can do all kinds of stuff. And then you, the military's got AI that is, you know, I mean – for better or for worse, our military is going to have, uh, I think they're automated weapon systems where you have AI deciding who who gets shot at, you know. And But when it comes to that real human touch, sex robots are the frontier. I mean, you mentioned in the book, and I'm so glad that you did, that sex has really pushed a lot of technologies and fueled the development of new technologies. And I just think this is where it's going to be because you have to have, if you're going to have a sex robot, a companion really, forget the sex part. The sex part yes. is almost irrelevant. It's the companion robot. This is where it's going to happen. Um, did you feel that that is what these innovators were pushing for or was it more about the sex? What, what, what was really the drive here? You're totally right. I mean, the innovators were pushing for the companionship side and they all said, all of the people that I spoke to, they said they're, they're adding the sex on because that makes it more commercially appealing. That's where the money comes from. And also the sex is quite easy to do. You know, you, you give it a few bits of anatomical function, some animatronics in certain parts of their body, and you've got a sure. sex robot. But the, right. the challenge, the, the uh, intellectual challenge that they're trying to solve is how do you create the illusion of companionship, of a meaningful relationship, of a being who knows and cares about you, uh, who you can sit and have a conversation with. So the, the the rocket fuel will come from the money that comes from the sex, but the the companionship part is 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 the really tricky part. Yeah, I think that that's right. You know, it's it's one of those things where you know one of the things when when I was thinking about this, I can't really. Uh, you know, maybe this is because I'm older. I'm not of younger generation. I didn't grow up with this type of stuff. But I could see having a sex robot for practice, right? I mean, you know, let's be frank here. Sex is one of those things that it's difficult. If you're watching 
pornographic film. That's not how it really works. All right. Spoiler alert, anyone listening. But to get practice, you have to like put in the hours, right? If I want to be good at basketball, I just go to a court and I buy a ball for, you know, $10 and I put on shoes. To practice with sex is a little more difficult. I could see people having robots to use to practice on just to figure it out. You know what I mean? Because there's a lot going on there, especially when you're young. Did that ever, did anyone ever talk about that? Or was this companionship for adults going, you know, forever? Well, David Levy, who wrote a book called Love and Sex with Robots that came out in 2007, and it was the first kind of proper academic look at this. He did write about that and about how it could be useful, again, for young men. It's not something people think about with with women. And it's, it's difficult to, I mean, I'm careful in the book to say that I can't speak for all women, but I do think that female sexuality and male sexuality is very different and that women are not turned on by this kind of stuff. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think with um, David Levy writes that it would be a good a good way for uh, young people or unconfident people to practice. But I would say to that, you know, just as you say, porn isn't real sex. Sex with a robot wouldn't be real sex, and it would lead to a particular kind of set of expectations uh, of, of you know sex is is complicated and messy and it's not always great and it doesn't always go to to plan and you shouldn't necessarily expect it to you need to have you know you know when you're a mature adult that the important thing is to have a sense of humor about it all and to not have expectations that if i do a b and c then d e and f will happen for example and so i think actually we've been having sex for millennia without practice with machines and it's it's been okay in fact what we need is better conversation better discourse about things so people don't feel so embarrassed when things don't don't go right because they don't always go right i i would feel quite scared having sex with someone who'd had a lot of sex with a robot before and was going to try out their skills on me as their first human being i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to be that test case no i understand that but Here's the great thing about sex robots is they can be programmed. I mean, you talk about a couple people who have built in personalities. I mean, I know kind of – I don't want to spoil anything here, but kind of the, the summation of that chapter is we're not creating sex robots. We're creating slaves to you know run around and do all stuff in the house and whatever, you know, whatever you want a, a robot to do. And that, I think there's a, that's a valid argument. But I think l- – let's just go down the practice path just for a second because I think – All that stuff could be built into the AI, if I may play devil's advocate here, and you could create a situation or, you know, a random scenario. Like here, you're going to have one in five scenarios pop up. How do you handle it? Mm. Um, You know, plug it into, you know, your sex robot. I think that could actually be helpful depending on the situation. It's not, wouldn't be my mode of choice, but I could see a subset of people who this may be a benefit to. I could see that. I would say that those kinds of robots, you wouldn't necessarily need the companionship element to be very sophisticated. It could just be something that has animatronics that behaves in a certain physical way. You wouldn't need the same kind of uh, conversation, joking, sense of humor, you know, talking about movies and music. You wouldn't necessarily have to have that there. Um, I can see that. But again, I think I think the answer is for us to, to not be so scared of, of messing up on our first few times or whatever and it, you know we just we just need to be less awkward with each other <laughs> right no that's true i mean i have this weird this is a weird thing to admit but there's this game called leisure suit larry which is really popular in the 80s and so the whole point of the game it's set in the 70s i mean it's it's you know, a highly inappropriate game. And as a kid, you always wanted to jump in. But the point is you're playing this guy who's like a 70s throwback and he's just trying to get laid the entire game. That's the point. And so you have to do like A, B, C, and D with each person and, you know, whatever. But I think if you take that idea and you apply it to a sex robot, I think there is... It doesn't, you know, it has to be, as you mentioned, it's the humanity. How do you talk to a person? How do you connect to a human being? And if you don't have that to practice on, it can be difficult. And that leads to very socially awkward people who have trouble connecting. Now, the thing you mentioned in the book, which is a very real risk, is then you become too comfortable with a robot and then you lose the humanity. And I think those are very important things to weigh because I do think that that is a danger. I mean, look what's happened with phones. We 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 we're we're a communicative, very social species, and that has led us to love social media. But you're doing it from a computer. You're not really talking to anyone. Um, even if you like, I use Discord a lot, which is a, a you know video game thing where it's a headsets and you're actually talking to people, but you're not really seeing them. I think there is this danger. Uh, you know, I'm kind of arguing against myself as I'm talking, but I think there is a danger of separating yourself 
putting technology as that filter. I think you do have a good point there. Yeah, I think that people, those the sorts of people who would want to practice with a robot more than anybody else are the sorts of people who we need to find a way to reach out to so they can connect with with human beings. That That's what I think. And maybe that's idealistic. People, some people might say that's never going to happen. There are some people who are just awkward and this is the only chance. Whoops, knocking my computer here. This is the only chance that they're ever going to have of uh, of any kind of contact. Um, but I, I think that's a really dystopian way to, to look at things. And I think human beings are really good at reaching out to each other. And, um, and we need to nurture that rather than develop this technology for those people. Now, that's fair. I mean, you know, if you if you want to learn a language, the best way to do that is to jump into a country and just learn it. But sometimes you can't and you have to use a computer to practice the Rosetta Stone. Um, I think those are, you know, I think they're interesting points. One, of, Do you watch the TV show Rick and Morty? Have you ever seen that? Show? Yes, I have. I love okay. it. OK, OK, great. So you're going to know this this reference. There's this great episode. I think it's in season two where Morty uh, goes with Rick to he's out in space. And they end up in like some kind of goodwill charity shop or whatever. And, the, you know, Morty's in the back Morty's a 12 year old kid and he sees this robot this female robot and he asks asks if he can have it and so Rick buys it for him and throughout the course of the episode he's a 12 year old boy and it's a sex robot and so you know he disappears for half the episode and then at some point halfway through the episode the sex robot has turned into a ball and is essentially has taken and it's gone from a sex robot into a virtual womb, like a you know, like a, I think you call it a bio bag in the book. Yeah. And I love that episode because in some ways it is two topics that you talk about. And I feel like that would be the natural path is to, you know, because I think we're moving towards this idea of selecting you know, the almost the way we do with breeding dogs and everything. Um, I, did you see that episode? Did, did I that haven't stri- seen it. And I'm thinking, how come I'm hearing about it for the first time here? I what? Know. Okay, well, Sounds I'm going to send exactly that to you. Dude, yeah, dude. yeah, I'll send you the link to that. Sounds it's right. no, it's great. And so, and, and anyway, so it, it ends up going to this other planet, and it's an you know, it's an alien life form, and so it's part alien, part Morty, or whatever. It's a great episode. But I think that that really speaks to this idea that we really believe we will be creating babies out you know i think it's exogenesis you talk exogenesis. about exogenesis exogenesis yeah uh, this was uh, this to me is almost in some ways almost the scariest part of the book because it's the scariest part of the book the death not as scary as the birth part and yeah that's it's the bit that scared me yeah what what really i mean what what spoke to you about this because it seems like one of those things it's almost like a train wreck you can't look but you got to know what they're what they're doing here so there is enormous dark potential in artificial wombs in growing in in having the potential to grow babies outside the human body there's amazing amazing good that can come from it as well so that's what scared me so much is that that the people who are developing this technology at the moment are doing it with the noblest of intentions which is they want to save the most vulnerable human beings on earth uh, super premature babies which makes this really uh, a difficult thing to argue against ethically. Like, who's going to say we shouldn't develop technology to save tiny, struggling babies, you know, desperate to to gasp out their first breaths? Well, I, I will. If you give me a second, I will. But I'll let you finish. But go on. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is that this technology, we're quite far away from the full process of being able to, you know, put a, a sperm and an egg in a bio bag or in a glass vial and grow a baby in there. But it, I think it is at least theoretically going to be possible within a couple of decades, whether or not we allow it to happen legally or because there's some scientific convention against it is another matter. But it is going to be possible. And when it is, it's a very powerful tool. And it, it's, you know, you, you talk about equality, equality between men and women. Um, this is something that would allow there to be absolute equality between men and women. And it would come from women no longer having this one power that women have always had which is the power to create human beings inside their bodies. And in some respects, that would be incredibly liberating, I think. And in some respects, it would be terrible for women, because even in the most misogynistic societies in the world, women are prized for nothing more than their ability to create human beings uh, and to grow them in their bodies. If we don't have that power, then uh, what are we for if you're in a really misogynistic society? And also a lot of the rights and a lot of the choices that we have um, come from the the right to choose what happens to your body. What if it doesn't have to happen to your body? And so doing the, the reporting for this made me think about so many things. And one of those things made me think about there are so many powers that women have that men don't have and rights that we have that men don't have. Like I have the right, I have the right to choose not to become a parent 
you don't have that. I, I can't have a baby against my will. In, in a world where, in a, in a country where abortion is legal, it is not possible for me to become a mother against my will, but you could become a father against your will. Um, all of these things, and once this technology exists, it's very likely that those, those rights and, and uh, roles that we have will be, will be taken away. So in the wrong hands, this could be really dangerous technology. But at the moment, it's being developed by people with with halos, you know, people who are saving tiny babies. So um, so those are those are hands that a lot of people would put a lot of trust in. Sure. Well, enter Daniel J. Glenn, analytical mastermind. I will give you the argument <laughs> against. Well, so first of all, I do want to mention that you said that if reproductive rights were taken away from women, what would they be good for? And I think in those extremes countries, sex is not just for reproduction. And I think that that does have a strange value you know, as, as horrible as that is to say. Yes. Um, uh, but to continue that horrible thought, um, I think when you talk about saving babies, I will argue um, in this book and probably for the rest of the, our conversation that to me, nature has figured it out. Every baby is not supposed to live. Every human being is not supposed to live. There are, if you look at this, you could easily look at the pandemic that's going on now and saying, this is nature saying, you guys are overpopulating this planet. I'm, we got to trim some of the weeds here. I really think that these types of technologies are in some ways very dangerous to the human race, not just for overpopulation, but if a baby is born early, or that is nature saying this isn't supposed to happen, whether it's genetics or whatever, you're, you're, now you've got a bigger gene pool, now weaker genes are getting into the system. I'm not going down the eugenics route here, but I'm saying that the, these systems are in place by nature, and we are saying to ourselves, we know more than the force, the being that created these systems. We know more, we know better, so we're going to change it. And I think that is very dangerous to go down. And yet we do this all the time. You know, we do this all the time, and you would never argue against it. For example, we let women have cesareans. You know, I am five foot four and a half, my husband is six foot two. You know, I I tried to give birth to his children naturally. It didn't work. I should have died in childbirth. Okay, Jeez, I should have yeah. died in childbirth. Without things like cesareans, th then a lot of people would die. But then you know, now I have have uh, had this my little boy. He's a very very big boy. Who knows what what kind of situation the woman who carries his child is is going to be in? It perpetuates itself. We become more and more dependent on technology that we use to to save us. But the point is, yes, this might be nature's way of, of sorting things out, but we, we, in many respects, we just can't, um, it is against our nature to allow it to happen. If you look, for example, at the pandemic, the vast majority of people who are dying are over 80 or over 70. And if you look at numbers under 40, they're very low. And I know that in my country, in the United Kingdom, where there have been, I think, 140,000 deaths from COVID-19 so far. Six children under 10 have died of COVID. But nobody is going to say, we're going to let everyone run around and run free and let all the old people die simply because nature's saying their time has come. We, we, we have to choose what kind of society we want to live in. So instead, we're making children make these enormous sacrifices and not go to school, even though the likelihood of of them being seriously ill is infinitesimally small. I mean, these six children under 10s who died all had underlying conditions. So we, we expect people to make these sacrifices for the sake of, of, of society in, in general. And, and I would totally agree with you that there are some babies who perhaps, you know, it is just not, not their, it's not their turn to be on this planet. But when you are a parent and you've carried a baby, you are, evolutionarily wired to do whatever you possibly can to make that baby live. And if there is a doctor saying, hmm, maybe we could try this, you'll say, yes, I'll try that. I'll try that. And um, it, it's just, it's, it goes against your instincts as a, as a parent and how we function in modern societies to say we're going to allow nature to take its course. No, I mean, yeah, that's true. But those people shouldn't be making the decisions then. I mean, you should have someone who is separated from that emotionally. I mean, no person should be making a strictly an emotional decision. Uh, I think logic is, is very important. Uh, you know, I do want to mention two things. Number one, I think in your book, this is a stat from your book, that most, that 87% of prematurely babies have underlying health conditions that go on through their entire life. There's super premature babies. So babies born right at the cusp of viability. Yes, it's, it's very rare that they, they have, if you 
you're born at 23 weeks that you go on to have a, a, a normal life. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't know that that's fair. In some ways, that feels selfish to put that on somebody else in a way that a lot of a lot of the decisions in the fertility chapter and in life, and, and it brings up a lot of things, a lot of these decisions in some ways are selfish. And we've accepted that that the you know that people are allowed to make these selfish decisions yeah. despite the fact that other people's lives are involved including the child which rarely has a voice absolutely i mean i'm i'm working on a separate story at the moment which is to do with the fertility industry and how that works and and the the prime driver of that is people's desire to be parents they don't think about what life is going to be like for the for the babies that they conceive or what's it going to be like when my child is 35 or 40 they don't they don't think about that at all and, you know, it, it isn't even just emotion that is driving these decisions. You've got parents who will do anything to save their babies. And then you've got doctors who are very ambitious and who what they see is a really interesting medical problem here. This is a very vulnerable baby. Can I get the most positive outcomes possible? I might be able to write a paper if I can show that I can say, save this baby. So the doctors aren't being, you know, pushed by the emotion of their patients, they're seeing a, a challenge that they want to rise to. There are lots of different things at stake, but none of them are necessarily in the best interests of the baby. Now, there will be some people listening to this who, say, who will think, what's wrong with being disabled? You know, are, you, are we arguing that a child with cerebral palsy, that their life is not valuable and, and shouldn't be fought for? Um, you know, it's, it's a very, very complicated set of, of ethical things, which is why I love it as a, as a, as a topic and, a, and a, a field of discussion. But it's forcing us to really clarify what we want from, from medicine and also confront the fact that we really don't know what we're doing when we have babies. We have absolutely no control over what happens. You can't do experiments on pregnant women and say, okay, this outcome's better than that outcome. Nobody knows what's going to happen. And it is, um, you know, quite often there are some really, really tragic outcomes. And there's so much emotion involved there that people will do whatever they can to, to, to get the outcome they want. And uh, it, that's, why, that's why the fertility industry is, is such a big deal. No, I, th I think so. I mean, I, you know, I would say that uh, you could do those experiments. Um, you just can't tell anyone about it. So, so I'm sure people have done that. A couple of things I just want to comment on really quickly. Um, you know, you mentioned that in the UK, you can't have kids running around despite the fact that they're, um, you know, that, they're, that it's infinitesimally small that they would die from that. Yeah, mm. uh, well, not in the United States. My grandmother lives in, a in one of the states where you can kind of do whatever you want. There aren't really any restrictions in place. So um, uh, it, it's, it's a little strange to hear that. I wish, wish we kind of had that same mindset. You, you mentioned the cerebral palsy, and I understand what you're saying there. And it's not that their lives don't have value, but people forget, and the people fighting for those children don't understand how difficult it is to live with those types of of disabilities. Not just not just physically, but socially, emotionally. It's really hard. And you're putting that on someone without, I mean, it's not like a baby can say, yeah, you know, I'd like to be born. I'm going to yeah. try the cerebral palsy thing out. I think I can handle it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, these are all, as you mentioned, they're, they're, these are really difficult, fundamental questions. But the thing is also, if, you, if you're a, a parent in a situation where you've given birth to a, a baby at 23 weeks gestation at the cusp of viability, and you know that there's an 87% chance that the baby's going to live with a lifelong disability, you also hear there's a 13% chance that the baby will be fine. Yeah. And you're thinking about that 13% chance. You are. Yeah. All the way through, you're just rolling the dice all the time and just hoping, you know, you, you, you get what you need. No, I mean, it's true. I mean, we also live, at least in America, live in a culture where, you know, American Idol's popular, where you say, oh, if I, you know, if I want to be an entertainer or a musician, right, or a podcaster, you know, I can do that because this one guy from Ohio did it one time. You know, it's like, well, the chances of that are pretty small, you know, unfortunately, but we still chase the dreams. And I think that that's exactly what you're saying for it's hope. And and uh, this is an interesting transition because I know we're not getting to a lot of stuff. Your book is so dense. I want to at least touch on, on every topic because the other thing that I think I've got a bunch of notes. I mean, I think I took more notes on this book than any other one in recent memory. But the, the birth, this idea of playing with 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 life and, and, and growing it leads us directly into food, which is this, it's such a weird topic in this book. And it's the idea of clean meat, taking biopsies from animals and growing this meat in a lab and then serving it as food as a way to you know, feed the, the meat desires of the world. 
Uh, this was so weird. Um, so tell me a little bit about it. And if you can weave in your story of the chicken nugget, because it <laughs> that nugget apparently affected you greatly because you talked about it for the rest of the book. And it made yes. me grossed out to think about yes. it. Yes. I ate a lab-grown chicken nugget that turned me vegan for all of the wrong reasons. Like, well, for about four days afterwards, I couldn't eat any meat at all. Um, so yeah, I'll rewind. So basically, this is an industry funded by and run by people who are vegan, who don't really talk about being vegan very much, um, because they've kind of come to the decision that the ethical arguments against veganism haven't won people over, and that they know that uh, it it alienates a lot of carnivores for people who are vegan to be telling them not not to eat meat. So instead, they've decided that they are going to um, let people eat meat, but produce it in a different way. That if they can produce meat, instead of growing it inside the body of an animal, they will grow it in a lab. And if they can get it to be taste competitive and price competitive with um, real meat, then people will shift away from living at the expense of animals and, and instead eat this other substance. And uh, so I ate this chicken nugget made from the flesh of a, of a chicken called Ian, who was still alive at the time that I ate him. Um, they had taken a biopsy. So weird. <laughs> and uh, and uh, bathed it in a nutrient bath that made the cells multiply and grow. And then they had massed it together in this chicken nugget. But the nugget that I ate was not what you're imagining. It was not a cut of meat. It was not a piece of meat. It was a mass of cells bound together with some other stuff. They couldn't even tell me what it was. And so well, I, when I ate it, it tasted of chicken because it was chicken, but it had the texture of the most, it was, the texture was completely wrong. It tasted like mash, mush, mushed up meat. And I think there was this primal evolutionary response inside me that said, this is very bad. You must not eat this. You must not swallow it. But of course I had all these PR people around me, so I had to go. <laughs> and they're all saying, oh, tastes like chicken, doesn't it? And I was yeah. like, yeah, tastes like chicken but it was very mushy. So the, the people who are making this are generally well-intentioned people who feel that they are saving the planet by giving the carnivores what they want by stealth, by making a kind of little swap. So, hey, you can have the same thing, but it's not going to come from an animal. It's going to come out of a lab. And when I, when I was first doing the reporting for this, particularly at the beginning of the book, when I uh, was, was meeting the guy from the Good Food Institute, who was a very, very impressive guy, um, I felt like maybe there is no story here. Maybe there's nothing problematic about this. Maybe this really is going to be the salvation of humanity. But then I had to kind of step back and go, hold on a second. What does this say about humanity that we're going to such great lengths to continue eating as much meat as we eat now, that we are actually growing flesh in a laboratory when we could just eat a little bit less meat? We could just eat it twice a week or, or perhaps once a day. But if we just were prepared to eat a little less meat, we could save the planet save our bodies, be much kinder to animals. We wouldn't need intensive agriculture. So it was a kind of lesson in where we are now as human beings, the fact that this technology is being developed at all. Yeah, I mean, it was such a wild ride. I think you're talking about Just, J-U-S-T, which is one of the 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 one of the um, startups that's looking into this, they talk about being able to make the chicken nugget from a feather, which I thought was very weird. Would you talk about the talk to someone, another scientist later on who says, ah, it's possible, but stupid. Um, you know, again, my nature argument kicks in here is just because it's a mass of cells, it is in no way going, it hasn't walked around, it hasn't pecked other chickens, it hasn't flapped its wings. It's literally a mass of cells, unexercised muscle. It sounded vile to me. Um, it really, that that story of the chicken nugget made me rethink my life and I didn't even taste the chicken nugget. Uh, I feel like you, I don't know if you remember, I got a lot, I didn't mention I Am Mother. I'm going to send that to you as well because that's very like the birth, The that's a really great movie about the birthing. But this made me think of another pop culture's touchstone and that is when Mr. Burns is forced to eat his three-eyed fish blinking yes. and he spits <laughs> the fish across the room. I feel like that was you when you were eating this. Yes, I, I, I felt like Mr. Burns with a fork full of blinky there. I mean, it's very interesting what you say there. There's a philosophical question, isn't there yeah uh, of what makes it chicken is it chicken if it has the cells of a chicken or does a piece of meat have to be chicken if it's walked around and behave like a chicken in order to have the texture of chicken what is chicken you know there's a whole there's a whole debate to be to be had there i mean yeah there's this 
problem within the clean meat industry, the ick factor of are human beings going to be grossed out about it? And I do think that at some point in the future, through 3D printing, you know, there's a British company now that's growing animal fat. There will be companies that are growing cartilage. Then there'll be companies growing meat. They will 3D print something that is very, very like a steak or a, a cut of meat. Um, I think it's definitely possible. It just seems a very, very silly that we're prepared to go to all this effort instead of just curbing our appetites a bit and letting animals have a good life, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really, that, that that chapter really spoke to the whole idea of using technology to circumvent the uh, the hurdles of our, our society and our, our cultural norms and habits. I mean, that really was the most ridiculous example. I mean, growing meat in a lab because we don't want to kill animals, but we still want to eat them. I mean, that is so bizarre. I mean, if aliens came down and yeah. so they were like, what are you guys doing? Let's go to the ne next planet. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, and the last thing I want to talk about on that, this this is the hypocrisy. Uh, like to go along with that, this is the hypocrisy of what of, of this industry. Because you mentioned very briefly and, and you kind of snuck it in there about the nutrient bath. It's yeah. like, oh, nutrient bath, oh, fuels the cells. What could that possibly be made of? Well, it turns out, I'm not going to tell you what it's made of, but let's just say it's worse than veal, which is one of the yeah. most vile animals, uh, animal meats that you can possibly eat. Uh, it grossed me out when you described how they get this, which is called bovine... Fetal bovine <laughs> serum. Yeah. It is, as I say in the book, it is yeah. possibly the least vegan substance on earth. Yeah, I mean, I didn't dwell <laughs> on it very much. And the no. reason why I didn't is twofold. The main one is that that's the main criticism that people throw at this industry of, oh, my God, you're growing this stuff in this incredibly disgusting substance. Um, cruel substance, not just disgusting. Cruel. It's incredibly cruel. cruel. Yeah, cruel. And it, yeah, it comes from the beating heart of, of calves that are fetuses, you know. Um, but um, the industry knows that that's a problem and that's a major image problem and they are working on finding um, replacements for that medium. And they have found them. They're just, none of the mediums are as good as FBS. So uh, they're trying to find, it's kind of a, you know, magic juice for growing cells in and they're trying to find alternatives. They have found alternatives, but they, they can't make alternatives that are um, that they can scale up in the same way, that they can produce the same quantity. So yeah, it's pretty bad, uh, that stuff, but it's not going to be the problem forever. So I, I mention it, but I don't dwell on it because I, I, I think, I don't know, I think there are, there are bigger issues with it um, than that. <laughs> well, I mean, that tells you everything you need to know. There are bigger issues with this industry than, than the fetal calf's beating heart blood yes. of, a be of a fetal calf supply. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that really tells you everything you need to know. I mean, I, I think, you know, this is... I mean, a terrible place to end the episode, but I think it's actually great because it'll give people something to think about because that is what this book does. Is it gives you a lot to think about. None of these questions are easy to answer, although you do a great job at the end. No spoilers. I think you do a great job of summarizing everything in the little epilogue. Uh, I think it's it's a great way to do it. So if people want to learn more about this by the book, uh, I see it behind you, right behind your right ear there, turned around neatly in the back. I'm sure that's a coincidence. How can people <laughs> find this book and find you, social media and all that? So my website is jennycleman.com. You can contact me via there, but it's also, uh, you can get the book everywhere. It's in lots of different languages too now. Uh, but if you look for it on Amazon, you can find it. There are also lots of links. If you go on my website, you can buy it from different places if you don't want to buy it from Amazon. But it's easy to get sex robots and vegan meat. And social media, do you do? Uh... Oh yes, I'm on Twitter at Jenny Kleeman. I'm also on Facebook, not very active there. And I haven't really discovered Instagram properly. So the best way to get hold of me is on on. Uh, Twitter, I'd say. Well, I would say Instagram is probably good if you want to take pictures of you spitting out uh, meat jelly, I guess is the best way to describe it. <laughs> I think you'd get a lot of likes for that. It's really interesting. Well, you're going to stick around. We're going we're gonna to touch on the last topic of death. We're going to do a little bonus episode. Um, but until then, I, I really appreciate you being on the show. This is just a fascinating book and possibly has changed my life, at least changed my brain for the past 24 hours. So thank you very much for being on the show today. It's a total pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night.
Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. So if you like the show, you've got to subscribe. You wouldn't dare miss an episode. And we're available on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. And if you are not readily subscribed to those platforms, you can find all the links you need right on the, our website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. Easy to find, easy to navigate. And as a matter of fact, right next to that, those podcast subscriptions as our social media, links to our shows, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages are all right there on the Fascinating Nouns webpage, as well as every episode we've ever done. It's right there, and it's free, organized by episode number or by episode guest. You can find links to that right at the top of the page. And of course, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.